The Green Sundays is the teaching season of the church year. I usually talk about it in terms of Christian discipleship, so I thought I'd begin by uh, doing a little teaching, and then hopefully in the sermon there'll be more yet. But we uh, sang a portion of Psalm 119, and I realized that uh, at 8 o'clock we do because we, we read the psalm. But you wouldn't see it in the prayer book, and some of you may have gone to the prayer book and seen Psalm 19, which is the longest psalm in the Psalter, and you see here that verses 105 through 112, which we sang today, uh, is under the heading in bold of none, N-U-N. And then the next section is sunk. And some of you may have seen that and said, what in the world is this. So I thought I'd just tell you so you can amaze your friends. Psalm 119 is an acrostic, which means that each section, uh, as it is shown here, uh, is begins, each verse begins with this Hebrew character. None, in this case. So each verse begins with the letter none. Okay? So there are a hundred and gazillion verses in Psalm 119, and it's an acrostic. I think there's another acrostic in the Psalter, but I can't remember now which one. But this is the most famous one. So when you run into this, uh, that's it. Also, we have in the Psalter um, uh, the Latin introduction to, like, Lucerna Pettibus Meis. That's, you know, from the old Vulgate Bible, when the... When the uh, when the Psalter was in Latin, so we still put it up there uh, for whatever reason, so people will remember those who knew when we made the translation from Latin. Are you meaning to say there's humor in the Bible? There is, yeah. yeah. I may mention it in the sermon, but I, this is preachable material. Here's a great article I just read in the Atlantic Monthly, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. <laughs> so uh, it might surprise you how so I thought that was very interesting in the therapeutic culture that we, that we live in at this particular point what an article it is three readings today uh, from Genesis the continuation of the Rebecca and Isaac story and the reading from Romans and in uh, the parable of the sower, Matthew's version of the parable of the sower. And I always get nervous in the Green Sundays because, you know, we're on a three-year cycle. And probably people who teach homiletics should say, well, pick one of them and focus on it and make that the centerpiece of your sermon. And I always, I never pay any attention to that because I think you got three years to think, I hope, so, some of the, they're all good. So we should say something about what they mean and if they might be any help to us uh, during the week. So that's what I'm going to do and uh, talk about Genesis and Romans and Matthew's Gospel. Uh, so I'll begin with Genesis. Rebecca, we were introduced to last week and this continues the Rebecca and Isaac story. And it's a familiar story on one level because Rebecca marries Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And Rebekah has had difficulties getting pregnant. 
And by the time, according to the biblical account, she has these children, uh, uh, Isaac is 60. So I guess it took quite a time because she was a very young woman when she married Isaac, and I think Isaac was about 40. So she gets pregnant finally, and it's the continuation of one of these stories, uh, women having difficulty conceiving children like Sarah did. And Sarah had Isaac. So this pattern follows now with, with this story. And uh, Rebecca is going to have two children, Jacob, maybe the most famous, and Esau. And the story of Esau and Jacob is what is going to begin today in, in one sense. So the beginning of the story, this is biblically scholarly stuffy, but so what? Uh, it is a situation where she's having a difficult pregnancy and she says the children are struggling in my womb. And so if you read it in the Hebrew text, the word that is used for struggling could probably better be translated as crashing. They are crashing. In the womb, and those of you who have been pregnant, I never have, uh, may, may have some understanding of that of crashing feeling, I don't know, but it's, it's cer certainly what Rebecca was feeling, and she thought, boy, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to survive this. So she, she prays to God, or speaks to God, and she receives an oracle, and God says, you know, this struggle internally that's going on inside you now is going to continue after these children are born between them. And what we're going to be talking about is the development of two of the peoples that Abraham is the, is the sort of precursor of all these different generations and peoples uh, in the known world at the time. So we have the oldest, who is Esau, and he's born very hairy and red, and Jacob comes afterward with his hands on, on Esau's heel. So Esau is Isaac's favorite. He is impulsive. He's an outdoor guy. He's a hunter. He's very vigorous. And Jacob is his mother's favorite and is quiet and lives in the tents. I was surprised to read again that he was doing some cooking. I don't know how common that was in the ancient Near East, for, but Jacob was doing some cooking. And he was in the tent. Um, Jacob was, is, is known in the text as a quiet man. And the word that is used to, for that, it also means morally innocent. And the interesting thing about that is that Jacob is going to turn out to be anything but morally in, in, innocent. In fact, he has corrupt motives in some ways that uh, are going to make themselves known in this story initially. So Esau comes in from outside, kind of impulsive, not thinking much about anything. It doesn't sound to me these days we would say that Esau was much of a reader, you know, or <laughs> very introspective about anything. He comes in, he's very hungry, and Jacob is making this lentil stew which I think is why it's red, 
if you use red lentils, it would be red stew, wouldn't it? So he's making this stew, and Esau says, give me something to eat. And he said, no, I won't give you anything to eat until you uh, give me your birthright as the oldest. And he said, what, you know, I can't think about this now. I'm just too hungry. Go, uh, you know, I said, well, give me your birthright. Okay. And then he eats the stew. And it, again, in the original text, we would say he inhaled it. Or he consumed the stew like an animal. He ate like an animal. That's what it would say in the Hebrew text. So Isaac, or Jacob now becomes the heir. And remember, we'll read the story later on where uh, Isaac is dying and he's going to come in to the tent and his mother has contrived, Rebecca, for him to wear furry clothes and Isaiah can't see very well, Isaac, I mean. And so he reaches out to touch what who he thinks is Esau and it's Jacob. And he then gives him the whole Megillah at that particular point. Now, why is this story in the Bible? For the people who produced it, it's a story about a fact that you and I can be helped by, and that is God can work with anybody. <laughs> this is a collection, right? And uh, some might say, we're dealing with what appear to be fairly complex people, Right? So, so you would think that God would wish uh, to work only with people who are obedient, who unconditionally love him, who understand uh, their dependence upon God for their salvation. And instead, he is working with people who have corrupt motives, who are continually trying to figure out ways to uh, out get out of other people's stuff that they want. Jacob is going to turn out, I think, to have some spiritual sensitivity. Esau will found a whole group of people, the Edomites. And Jacob's name will get changed to Israel. And Jacob has some terrible internal, spiritual, emotional, mental struggles. And he's going to wrestle, maybe the reading next week, he's going to wrestle with God all night once. And... Uh, somehow get his new name, Israel. And we'll go through a lot of very complex spiritual struggles. So this is a story, if we're thinking about it, how do we make any use of it, uh, is to be affirmed in the fact that God can work with each one of us and wants to and yearns to. And in the midst of the complexities and our inability to uh, figure this out or care or anything else that what we begin to see now in the biblical witness is God's steadfastness, God's faithfulness, God's stickability, God's ability to be there always. And that seems to be the story of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, God making pe people, ma making a relationship with God, breaking it, turning away from God, God always there laboring for that connection to be restored and for that sense of um, uh, healing and wholeness as part of our understanding as human beings. And also to see that that comes in the midst of all of our complexity and all of the things that we struggle with. Sometimes we think for very high, pious motives, uh, and they may or may not be. 
but God is faithful. This morning at 8, the reader of the lesson from Romans started reading it, and he practiced. But he, 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, you start reading chapter 8 of Romans, where it's, my goodness me, in the this and in this. And he goes, boy, in the middle of reading it, whoa, he goes, oh, boy. I, I thought I, thought I had... You know, because there's a lot of run-on sentence in, in Paul, and there's a lot of kind of very complex thinking that's going on here. He's, he's reasoning himself into a cul-de-sac sometimes. And so this is what uh, the reader did. He says, oh, oh boy. But I was trying to think, how can I make sense of this? Because sometimes we ignore these Pauline letters, or we make fun of Paul, or we criticize Paul. And much of what he says is very, not, on, not only uh, important, but it's central to our self-understanding of Christianity. So it needs to be in some way, um, got hold of in some way. So I was listening and reading the reading this week, and I realized that Paul was once again talking about a, a favorite subject of his, which is the relationship between the flesh and the spirit. So it's important always to say that when Paul speaks of the flesh, he is not condemning or in some way writing about the material, physical world, the body, any of those things. For Paul, the flesh, in this sort of mirror sense, in a negative sense, is the whole of the human person, body, soul, mind, spirit, not given to God in love, but given to oneself or turned inward with one's own concerns. So how would we explain this in a way that um, I've talked about in the past? And I think it has something to do with Father Keating's false self system. That we, all of us, engage in what he calls irrational programs for happiness. And they come as the, uh, around three energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And those areas all govern our life on a daily basis. We can't just say we're not going to get involved in those things. They're essential to the nature of our humanity and who we are. But we all know that if they're not in sync in some ways, that's where we get out of balance. That's where we go off the rails. That's where we can um, create situations that aren't healthy. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. So how do we keep those things in balance and get out of the hamster wheel of worrying all the time about things like that? And that, in some way, is the flesh. The spirit, for Paul, is the whole of the human person, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love. And he says that it is possible in this life to, in fact, possess the spirit and for the spirit to animate us in a positive way. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So I think Father Keating would explain that as our true self. 
a self that is not God. Uh, we, we are not God, as he would say, but our true self is God. It's the divine center. Each one of us made in God's image. So in this rather turgid section from Romans, he's talking about that kind of a relationship that exists between God and the world and each one of us. And it's a reminder because so much Christianity for so long has been, you know, preachers and teachers have talked endlessly about getting everybody ready to go somewhere else to experience this. You know, to be prepared. And I think that the biblical writers, including Paul, are focused on the here and the now. So how do you use the Spirit of God, your true self, to animate all that you do in relationship? How do you give yourself to worthy works in the world? How do you become the best human being you can be? How do you bring health and wholeness to your marriages, to your friendships, to the workplace? All of those things have something to do about life in the Spirit and how it's lived. So Paul today in Romans is talking about that, not the preparation for going somewhere else, some cloud cuckoo land, where we will finally experience what this means, you know. Now you and I, I believe, uh, and as Episcopalians, or certain, a certain species of Episcopalian, understand, I hope, that it is best for us to be agnostic about how we understand the future life. We know what the promises of God are, uh, and we, we believe that you and we will participate in them as we seek to be faithful. But the way we know that and become aware of it is through what we do now in history. Not waiting for some other, some other thing, you know. And a lot of Christian people think, well, if I live a good life, and I don't harm anybody. Usually, Father Holmes used to say to us in seminary, that means if you haven't committed adultery, if you haven't stole anything, if you haven't murdered anybody, and if you haven't cursed God, you're in the clear. Do you believe that? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how living in the spirit is going to make you the best human being you can be and make a difference in the world. So, that's what Paul's driving at, I think, today. In Matthew, we have the parable of the sower. And here's a little more teaching stuff. Um, the original parable, as it was spoken by Jesus, is the first nine verses that we read today. And it ends with just the parable, neat. And he who has ears will hear. Or those, you know, that's the parable. Now that has been the consensus of New Testament scholars, most of them for a long, long time. But it received further support from uh, the discovery, many years ago now, of the Gospel of Thomas. Because in the Gospel of Thomas, that parable is reproduced just that way with no interpretation. So, leaving aside the, the, the issues around the, the Gospel of Thomas, that parable appears in this Gospel and obviously comes as the 
uh, original section that was spoken by Jesus. Also, I saw a uh, video once of uh, a biblical scholar standing in the location where Jesus preached this parable, or Matthew speaks of him doing this in the boat. And it's like sort of an amphitheater that's natural. He's in this, and you could actually speak and be heard if you were in a crowd without any amplification, or very little. It, it, it is, in other words, it's not like, oh, this is all made up. He, he, he could do that. You could do that in this location. The acoustics are, are, are such that uh, that's actually a possibility. So Jesus preaches this parable. So we start by saying this. Whenever you listen to the parables of Jesus, in fact, any saying of Jesus, uh, here's the qu three questions. What did he mean when he said it? What were the issues on the ground that he was speaking about? What did the community that reproduces the parable for posterity in a written form understand it to mean for them? And what use do we make of it, if any? So the issue is the same there for this parable. What, what, where did it come from? You know, what does it mean? Some people think Jesus spoke these parables. They were deliberately hard to understand. They were deliberate riddles because he was trying to keep his true vocation uh, obscure from other people and uh, that uh, this is the reason he told these parables, right? I, I've always found that, uh, that it strains credulity. I think that people can understand this. Now, here's what happens. The second section of the gospel that we read today was the interpretation, and that's Matthew. Matthew is writing the interpretation for people now a gen two generations nearly away. He's interpreting the parable. Here's what it meant for Jesus. Jesus begins his earthly ministry. He is, he is now beginning to meet resistance and rejection. The missionary journeys that he sent people on have been mediocre in their success at best. Some of his closest associates have deserted him because he has moved in a direction uh, uh, that they do not approve of. I suspect it was speaking in such a way as to appear to be overly critical of the religious leadership in his day. And so he is faced with his uh, vocation, his ministry, uh, not moving along on all eights. So this parable is about maintaining confidence that his ministry will result in the triumph of the kingdom of God. And he tells a story about people in some, who follow him. And we have all kinds. We've got some who begin and it's, you know, initial enthusiasm but nothing. We have people who uh, sort of get interested and then they get moving away. We have people who uh, become involved and then they have pressing issues that they have to contend with. He refers to as the cares of this world. And then some people get well planted and are able to somehow be nurtured by the soil they're in, and they continue uh, to be faithful. So he then says the result of all of that 
is going to be an incredible success that stretches credulity, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, twentyfold. In the ancient Near East, the most a farmer could expect in terms of a return from successful farming and planting was seven times. So for him to say that in a parable, it's like, well, this is pretty outrageous. And you'll notice that in the parables, he is always doing that because he is driving home the idea that God's success with us as the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we'll call, we're called to be will be successful, will triumph and be successful beyond our wildest imaginations if we let go and let God. Matthew is struggling with a situation. Uh, he and Mark reproduced this parable. Mark first, then he, because Mark, Mark's earlier. And what they're talking about is something that was occurring before the Gospels were written and now seem to be continuing in their communities. And that is that uh, they too are facing uh, limited success or at least limited success with the group that they thought were going to really fog into uh, accepting the Messiahship of Jesus, and that is Jews. And we're beginning now to see the Jews fall away or say, he's not the Messiah, we're not moving in that direction with you, so now it's the Gentiles. And in the Gentile mission, we're initially having mixed results, and then we're going to experience big results. And Matthew is now probably the leader or one of the leaders in a Christian synagogue that is 80% Gentile. So he is experiencing some success here, but in an unexpected fashion. And so they're using this parable to say, with perseverance, steadfastness, the self-regulation and the internal stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities are going to and are beginning to bear fruit. So that's what we're going to take from this parable, more abundant than we had thought. I think of this parable this way. Um, I think that the, the people that are described by Jesus in the parable uh, are each one of us continuously throughout our life. I think we sometimes are just, you know, have no commitments of any kind or, or very shaky ones. Then we move to some level of commitment and we become disinterested or apathetic. Then we uh, somehow get re reconnected and we're then derailed by uh, the cares of this world. And then sometimes we have good periods where we're nurtured in the soil and we uh, produce fruit and we know what the, the right thing to do is. This is the era of the remote, you know, the, you know, looking at the giants for 30 seconds and then going back to CNN and then Entertainment Tonight or KQED or some god-awful thing on, what's her name, Suki on Jersey Shore or some sort of thing, you know, like that, right? And that's sort of a, a um, metaphor for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. 
And also, it's a, in a metaphor, this parable has something to do with the chronic anxiety in which everybody, in which everybody lives in. We are in a culture that is chronically anxious. This article, How to Land Your Kids in Therapy, uh, is written by a woman who is a therapist and who raised uh, a boy. Uh, I judge her to be in her 40s, maybe, early 40s. And she talks about deciding to become a therapist and learning all these things about what causes difficulty in families, you know, uh, parents that are disengaged, uh, uh, people who drop the ball in their parenting, <clears throat> the, uh, all of the kinds of things that we talk about in dysfunctional families. So she gets out and she starts therapy, being a therapist. And the first five or six families that come to her, or people that come to her, uh, are textbook. They're just like all of the stuff that she learned about and the categories and how we do this. And then one day she gets a young woman in her middle or late 20s who comes and sits down and says, I had wonderful parents. I had a very happy childhood. I love my siblings. I have a wonderful job. A cool job. I love my apartment. But I feel this terrible sense of emptiness. So she begins to look into this and discover or begins to have many, many uh, clients just like this. So she's figuring I'm doing a disservice to this, that uh, we've got a whole lot of victims of too effective parenting, too protective parenting, not realizing that a little adversity probably helps people far better than taking care of things. For example, you're at the playground. You have a four-year-old kid. The four-year-old kid is over there, trips on a rock. The parent is over there, picks the kid up before the kid can start to cry, before there's any processing by the kid about what happened to him. His knee is skinned. What is he going to do about shaking it off or not? How is he going to be able to cope with this? And it's all been fixed. I mean, he gets driven home, too. So... They have been affirmed and told all their life. They, there is no trouble in our generation, in the last generation, with low self-esteem. They don't suffer from low self-esteem. But you know what? They get out into the world and find out that they're not held as in high esteem as their families held. And that may or may not be a good thing, I don't know. But it certainly doesn't teach you about life. So, you know, it's just interesting, isn't it? The cares of this world can get us all derailed or very, very anxious. There are lots of reasons for this. People are afraid. There's all kinds of bad stuff out there. You want to protect your kids, you know. All that. But uh, more on, on this later. All of us go through this, and it relates to our spiritual, emotional, and mental states. This week, God can remember God can work with you.
Remember your true self. Remember that you can work on those irrational programs for happiness. And finally, uh, give thanks for the processes of being at all four stages uh, in the parable of the sower. It's good for your soul. Amen. Amen.